0: To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, "God have mercy on me, a sinner." I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For every one who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The text that we're looking at today is found in Luke 18:9 through 14. And uh, it's a a short text, and Luke, as the writer, is calling this a parable. Now, a parable is a a specific method that Jesus used in teaching while he was here on this earth. He used several different methods, but this was a very popular method that he used. And uh, the word itself, parable, means to lay alongside, so he's actually using some illustrations from common life, practical life, and he's using these illustrations in order to help us understand the kind of value of, that we ought to place on our lives and the sort of principles that we should adopt in, in our thinking, in our lives. So he used, Jesus used uh, something between 30, 35 to 46 parables. Now that, the number depends upon what everybody calls a parable. Luke identifies this parable and some of the other writers identify their parables by, by calling them that. But sometimes they're, they're, an illustration is given and it's not called a parable, so that's why we have a discrepancy between the number 35 and 46 of these particular types of teaching arrangements. Regardless of that, the, the parable was a, used a simple but a profound principle that illustrates common activities and even sometimes common attitudes as we'll see in this one. The parables were taken from uh, daily activity, uh, from agri- from the uh, agricultural activities of individuals like a sower who went forth to sow in, Luke in, in Matthew chapter 13, another text. Sometimes it, it uses the illustration of an individual who did something that's very interesting to us very important, like the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. That's called a parable. Sometimes parables are used to illustrate the foolishness of our behavior, like the uh, foolish rich man in Luke chapter 12 who uh, was doing so well he said, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build, build bigger barns. But he made no provision for his eternal destination. And so he's called a foolish rich man. Then there's the parable of the prodigal Son It's taken from activity of family activity. and this, this young man wanted everything that his father had in his inheritance. He wanted it then and he went into a far country and he spent it all on the foolishness. Sometimes the parable involves fishermen. sometimes it involves housekeepers, sometimes shepherds, sometimes business people. But in all of these, in all these parables, the illustration is given to help us understand and appreciate more the practical aspects of the teachings of God in our lives. This parable takes place in the temple. Now the temple at that time, and we need to understand this before we go too much further, the temple at that time was taken from the original pattern, of the one that was built by Solomon in the city of Jerusalem, in the city of David, as it's called, on Mount Zion. Now, that's where Solomon built the temple. That temple was destroyed, and the people were carried into Babylonian captivity. And then after that, there was a return to the city of Jerusalem and a rebuilding of the temple under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and in the Maccabees, and that temple was rebuilt about 400 years before Christ. And then that one was destroyed, and Herod built another temple, and the temple that we're looking at at this point was the one that Herod built, and it took him about 46 years, so he started before Jesus was born, up until the time after he was here on this earth for about 30 years. Uh, that, that temple was built by Herod the Great, and it was a magnificent... Edifice. the idea was that people thought that they could get closer to God by going to a place like this, an edifice like this to pray. Now we have to be careful this parable is not telling us we need to go to a certain place to pray it's telling us that these two men did that because they thought that's where they had to be now later on after Jesus rose from the dead That changed, although we find people, even after the time of the resurrection of Jesus and the beginning of the church, that there were people who still placed too much emphasis on going to that place to pray. Now, while Jesus was here, when he first started out in his public work at about age 30, he ran across a woman in Samaria at a well. And this woman said, said sir this we, we our fathers taught us that the, in this mountain we ought to worship God but you say at Jerusalem and Jesus said the time will come when neither at this mountain or at Jerusalem will men worship God for God wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth so you don't have to go to a certain place in order to pray these men were still under that illusion that they should go to that place to pray so a Pharisee And a publican, both of these men were religious-minded. They were concerned about God. They were believers in God. And they felt that in order for them to be heard by God, they had to go to the place where they thought they could find God. Later on, Stephen will say in Acts chapter 8 that God dwells not in temples made with hands. So when we think about praying, sometimes we erroneously think that we have to go to a certain place to pray where in fact... Any place you are, you can pray. You don't have to go to a desolate place or at a mountaintop or in a desert or even to a temple or an edifice or a church building to pray. God will hear your prayers if you approach Him in the Spirit and in truth. Now, it would be a gross mistake also when we look at this text because the text says that the that the parable was for those who trusted in themselves, and despised others. The text talks about a publican and a Pharisee. It would be a gross mistake on our part to believe that Jesus is wanting us to be able to identify a Pharisee with a pharisaical attitude by this text. This text is talking about what I feel and what I think, not what I think you think. And matter of fact, we're not even sure that the publican could hear what the Pharisee was saying. He's talking to the Pharisee and he's saying, here's the Pharisee saying with, within himself. Within himself he was thinking these things. Now what he was thinking was that he, that he was right and others were wrong. That was his thought and he's revealing this. God is revealing this. Our problem is if we, if we think, well, we, we can identify the self-righteous person. But that's what Jesus is doing, is showing me that I I can know who a self-righteous, smug individual is who believes that they're better than everyone else, that that's who I I can identify, and especially a religious person, that I can identify these self-righteous religious bigots. Now, that's not the purpose of this parable. This parable is telling me, Bill, you should not be like this Pharisee, not Bill... You ought to go looking for people like this so you can identify them. That's not what the parable is about. We don't know what this fellow is thinking except Jesus told us. He told us what he's thinking. He is exposing this man's inner feelings about himself that will show itself in his actions later. And it appears to be a warning for us not to have that same disposition. Now again... Thinking this through, we are told not to judge somebody else's attitude or heart. We can't judge somebody else. In Matthew chapter 7 at verse 1 and 2, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For what, with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. All that is saying is that I can't look at you and say, I know what you did, but basically, I know why you did it. I can't tell you why you did it. I can't tell you what your attitude is. I can't tell you your innermost feelings. I can see what you did, and I can avoid that, and I can say that's not right, but I cannot look into your heart and say, this is why you did that. So that's, that's where we have to be very careful along this line. These two representative men were religious men. They both had an attitude of feeling toward God and both of them apparently believed in God because it says both men were going up to the temple to pray. Both of them were there to pray. The Pharisee and the publican. So we know where they were going. We know why they were going. And then we know what they did. Now what we need to know is something about the men themselves. What sort of men were they? Well the Pharisee was among a group of people that were noted for their adherence to the law of Moses. They knew the law. And they had, they had enough time on their hands that they could study very diligently what the law said, the law of Moses and the Old Testament law. They, they did this meticulously. They went over it point by point, and they knew exactly what the Old Testament said and what the law of Moses said. That was what a Pharisee was. Paul said later in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which meant he knew the law. So these, these individuals were very, very uh, well versed in the law. They knew it. They knew it very well. They studied it diligently, and then they attempted to teach other people. And they demanded of themselves and a strict adherence to the law, which isn't wrong. It's not wrong to, to want to do exactly what God said do. Matter of fact, it was right. But the point is that even though they knew it well and they tried to apply it to other people, they didn't practice what they preached and taught. So Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. And what I'm saying at this point is we're not talking about this self-righteous guy that God identified. We're talking about a Pharisee in general. So people think of Pharisees in general as those people who... Know what the Bible says, know what the law says, but don't practice it. But pretend like they're practicing it. So, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then spoke Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're sitting as lawgivers. They're, they're sitting as those, they've enthroned themselves and said, We know what the law says, and we're going to tell you what the law says. And what Jesus said was, all therefore whatsoever they bid you to observe, that observe. In other words, do what they tell you because they're teaching from the law. But do not after their works for they say and do not. So it's okay if you do what they say, but don't do like they do. Paul referred to these men this way in, in Romans chapter 2 in verse 17 through 21. He said, Behold, you are called a Jew and you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God, and you know His will and prove uh, prove things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourselves are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, instructor in, in foolishness, a teacher of babes, you have the form of knowledge, and of the truth in the law. He said, you know this, you know the law, you've got the form and you know what it is. You therefore which teach another, don't you teach yourself? You that preach a man should not steal. Do you steal? Well, he's using—he's talking about being a hypocrite. A hypocrite. And that's usually what we think of us when we think of people that are that are very, very religious, very strictly religious, and yet do not practice what they preach. They're called hypocrites. Now that, thats thats from a term that's, that's uh, used in Greek tragedy and comedy in the on the stage. The uh, Greeks were um, concerned that when they were in a play or a drama presenting themselves to others that the people understood the emotions that they were feeling. So they held one of these masks on a stick, basically, and held it up. If they were going to be sad, they put it up over their regular face so the audience could tell that this was a sad moment. And then they had another one, if it was a happy moment. So they were actually showing, but the point is, they didn't really feel what they were showing, demonstrating, by the mask. So that's why Jesus is calling these individuals hypocrites, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. So that's that's how we know these men more than any others. The, but again, we, we need to hasten to say, he is not criticizing them for following the law of righteousness. That's not a criticism. So when people say, well, I think you're a religious hypocrite, what they're accusing you of is teaching one thing and practicing something else, which is valid. But if you're simply teaching and practicing what the Bible says, you're not a hypocrite. And the charge of hypocrisy tumbles to the ground. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, Till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, And shall teach men so, He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying your righteousness, which is justness, has to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. What does he mean? You cannot be a hypocrite. You cannot believe something and teach something and practice something diametrically opposed to that. He he, he, uh, taught that while he was here. And those who heard him teach later would teach the same thing. James said in James chapter 2 at verse 10 and 11, he said, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He that said do not commit adultery said also do not kill. Now if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. Now this Pharisee that was there praying, Apparently didn't grasp that concept. He wasn't. He wasn't getting it. He assumed that he was capable of keeping the law. Not only that, but he was capable of keeping the law without a stutter step. That is, he wouldn't. He wouldn't miss anything. He would be able to do it all. So he said he wasn't. He wasn't a uh, adulterer. He he didn't commit these things against the law he didn't do these things he said as a matter of fact he said i even tithe everything that all that i all that i have i tithe and he said and i uh, fast twice or three times a week he said i'm doing all these things that wasn't the problem that was not his problem his problem was that he was confident of himself and he despised others that was his problem and that's what we have to keep in mind. This man was self-righteous. He was self-righteous. That was his attitude, not his action. He was trying to keep the law. That's not wrong. His attitude was, I am better than anyone else. I am better. Now, I want to, I want to remind you before we get too far along this line that it's not, in, not only in matters of religion that you can have this attitude. It's in a lot of areas. But let's just, let's stay with the business that's before us, and that is in religion. What about the publican? Who was he? Both of these men came to pray. One man was uh, sold on himself and despised others. The publican, who was he? We read that term publican a lot in the New Testament. And it seems like it's always in, in some sort of vein where... It's a man that you can look down upon at least the Pharisees looked down upon him, and the, those who were in the state of Israel at that time, the Jews who were prominent, looked down upon publicans, they were less less than themselves they thought, so they were better than the publicans better how well there there's a number of ways we can we can approach this, but let's just start out by saying. Asking the question, what was a publican? Why, why are they calling him publicans? It's a very simple answer. He was a public man, publican. When the Romans overtook a nation or a country, they imposed their rule on that country. But they gave them a certain amount of self-legislation and self-government. And they used, they employed, the citizens of that country, in order to do their work for them. Now, they were they were not individuals who actually rolled up their sleeves and did any kind of work, Romans' work, and neither were the religious individuals in Israel. They had depended upon certain individuals of a lower estate, lower level of society, to carry out their bidding. The publican was a person who did work for the Roman government on contract. They contracted with the Roman government. So if the Roman government needed a bridge built, they didn't send bridge builders from Rome. They took bids from individuals in that area, that state, to do the work. So a publican could be a road building contractor. It could be a uh, community building contractor could be a bridge-building contractor. It could be a dome-building contractor or an arena-building contractor. And basically, those that we're talking about here that were so despised were tax-gathering contractors. What they did was, the publican bidded, these men bid on the taxes that could be gathered in their area. They had a certain area that they that they lived in, and so they'd say, okay, We believe we can gather this much taxes, and they would make a bid to the Roman government that they could do those taxes and gather that much. And so when that bid was sold, the publican paid the taxes to the Roman government. Now then, how did the publican get his money back? He collected the taxes. That was his business. Well, obviously, if you've had any dealing with tax collectors, they're not very popular. So the publicans were not very popular. Matter of fact, the uh, the ruling class in Israel looked down upon them as sinners. Not only did they despise them, they thought they were sinners. They were on a low, low level ground with them and with God. In uh, Luke chapter 19, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And in the first few verses there, he ran across a fellow that was up in a tree because he's a short, has short stature. He was up in a tree because he heard Jesus was coming and he wanted to see him as he came by. And this man's name, of course, was Zacchaeus. And when Jesus got there and he saw Zacchaeus in a tree, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have a meal at your house today. And so he went. And when Zacchaeus... Was confronted by Jesus. Zacchaeus was overwhelmed, he said, "He said, Lord, he said, if I have taken anything, if I've taken anything wrong from someone that w- that was not legitimate, he said, I will give up four times what I took from him. I'll re- restore four times. And he said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. Now that was the publican." Sounds like a pretty nice guy, doesn't he? He was a good man, and yet uh, these individuals were called sinners. They, they were looked looked upon as sinners, low level, not not on our same level. So this this Pharisee that had that attitude was he he uh, looked upon the publican with a distaste, dismissed him. In Luke chapter five verse twenty seven through thirty, in the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, it says. After these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. Now here was a man who had made a bid for taxes. He had already paid the taxes to the Roman government, and now he was trying to collect so he could get his money back. He left all. Levi just got up and left everything. He rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. Now, we're talking about Levi, but his name later on is Matthew. Matthew was one of the twelve apostles. He said he made him a great feast in his own house. This man had enough money that he could make a big feast for everyone, invited everyone in. And it says there was a great company of publicans and of sinners and others that came to sit down with him. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, Why do you eat with publicans and sinners? These people are beneath us. There was an animosity that the Pharisees entertained against the publicans. But there's no evidence that the publicans entertained the same attitude toward the Pharisee. They did not despise the Pharisee. Nor should we despise the Pharisee just because he's a Pharisee. The publican, it says, was standing afar off. He came to pray just like the Pharisee came to pray. He probably could not hear what the Pharisee said to God. This Pharisee was talking to God. He said, I'm so glad I'm not like this publican. I'm not like others. I'm not like this publican. He was saying that about him. He wasn't the... The publican probably didn't know that he was being viewed by this man in such a distasteful way. That was not his concern. His concern was his own standing before God. Some things that this publican knew that were admirable. He knew his own shortcomings. He knew where he fell short of God. He knew, and he understood the scriptures just like the Pharisee did, he knew that his, his righteousness was like filthy rags. That's what Isaiah told him in Isaiah 64, 6. He was not leaning on his own understanding. That's what the wise man told him in Proverbs 3, verse 5. And he wasn't proud. He knew that pride goes before fall, Haughty Spirit before disaster. Proverbs 16, 18. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He knew that God was merciful. And he knew that God would somehow justify him. God will justify the humble. It says in in, in Philippians 3 verse 9. He didn't justify himself. He didn't didn't excuse himself. And he didn't say, Lord, I'm not like that Pharisee. I'm not self-righteous. This publican didn't say that. He didn't say, okay, I may not be very good, but I'm certainly not like that guy. That's what the Pharisee said. This man didn't have that attitude. He depended upon himself, or he humbled himself, and he depended upon God to justify him, which Paul said in in Titus 3, verse 5, that God will justify us. He will justify the humble. So this man, standing before God, recognized all these things, and cast himself upon the mercy of God. The application of this text is broad enough, I think, to cover even our own modern situations. From this example, I think we can believe, we can understand and agree that Jesus is exposing the underlying attitudes that harm our souls. This man had confidence in himself and he despised others. Now in that context only, God can see that. He can only see that. I can't see that in you. You can't see that in me. God can see that in me. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11 and 12, I know this from God's Word. It says, What man knows the things of man save the spirit of man that is in him? Even so, no man knows anything of God except the spirit of God that's in him. Now, the point is, he's making, no man can know what's in your spirit except you. You're the only one who knows that. Other words describe this characteristic of uh, self-righteousness that make it a despicable attitude and we can make this application to ourselves. I can't judge you in this area. You can't judge me, but God can judge me. And as I look at the attitude that the Pharisee had, the attitude of self-righteousness, the application that I must make is to myself, not to you, to myself. This term describes an attitude or this parable describes an attitude that is uh, unappealing. It's unappealing to anyone. It, it describes an attitude of arrogance, a feeling of superiority, of self-importance. Some have used the uh, popular term narcissism. You Remember this fellow, Narcissus, was uh, the young man that fell in love with his own image in a pool of water, egoism, hubris, these are all terms that describe characteristics, our characteristics, that are unappealing to others. This sort of attitude in a child leads to bullying and it leads to social and emotional damage, demeaning of others, Making them less than they ought to be or making them think they're less than they ought to be because we think more of ourselves than we should. It can be intellectual. These Pharisees knew more than the publicans did about the Word. Intellectually superior. And, you know, don't, don't uh, mistake this. There are people who know more than other people do. That's not the problem. Knowing more and gaining more and trying to get better in your life is not wrong what he's saying is it's wrong to develop an attitude of superiority over others because I know more than you do I'm better than you that's the attitude that I can't have that's the attitude that's going to destroy me that's the attitude the Pharisee had it wasn't hypocrisy that he was talking about in Luke 18 it was the attitude of I despise others I am sufficient in myself and I I don't care about others. I want them to know that I'm better than they are. It can be physical. I'm faster. I'm stronger. I can beat you at whatever you try to do physically in any kind of athletic contest. I am the greatest, Muhammad Ali used to say. Found out that he wasn't. Although some people think that he still was. But the point is, the attitude, the attitude that I am the best, is the attitude that is unappealing. That's not an appealing attitude. It's not a generous attitude, and it's not the attitude that people are going to be drawn to. An, acceptance, an accepted behavior in the world arena today is, blow your own horn, because nobody else is going to blow it for you. That's the attitude. That's the attitude this Pharisee had. Not self-righteousness. That's not the problem. The problem was being better than someone else. I despise others. We are told that we are to be clothed with humility. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Clothed with humility. So now, in order for me not to have the disposition of self-righteousness, what do I do? What does God want me to do? I may succeed in so many things, and you may. you may. You may excel beyond your wildest dream. But at that point, even though you excel above others, what should your disposition be? Now, if you say, I am better, I am the best, and you are beneath me, then that's going to take away from any appeal or any generosity that people might feel toward you because of your accomplishments, basically. Jesus inculcates in the believer. You say, well, okay, I'm going to try to do my very best at whatever field I'm in. I want to do my best. If I'm, if I'm uh, studying to be a medical doctor, I want to be the best I possibly can be. And you should be. You should be. But the attitude you have as you get older, as you grow up in it, and as you accomplish it, the attitude you have should not be, I am better than you because I know more than you do. I know more. I'm a better person. I'm of more value than you are. These are the problems that Jesus is addressing here. I, I have a dismissal of others. He, he, he starts us out beginning. Jesus starts us out. Let's just say, how, how do I keep from doing this? When I, when I excel, when I, when I get better at what I'm doing than others, what should my attitude be? How can I keep from being arrogant? How can I keep from being prideful? How can I keep my ego in check? Well, the first thing that happens when you become a Christian is God reduces you to that of a babe, a child, an infant. He says, start all over again. You have to start all over again. and You have to have some different principles now when you grow up. So you become a babe in Christ. And then he says, as you start out, he says, what I want you to do is look at others like yourself. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Now how does it feel if someone dominates you and then makes you feel small because of the domination? How do you feel? You say, well, I'll I'll just get better than they are, and I'll do that to them. No, that's not what he he says. He says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Faith tells us that we are no better than anyone else. As a matter of fact, we are to consider others, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, better than ourselves. Consider ourselves, ourselves less than them. All of our abilities, and I think I need to come to this one, probably should have come to this one first. All of the abilities I have, all the intellectual abilities I have, all the physical abilities I have, all the emotional abilities I have, come from God. They're not mine. So that will reduce me to a point of humility. I I didn't get my intellectual prowess because I was just better at everything that I did. I got it because God gave it to me to start with. He gave me that ability. If someone else doesn't have that same brain power that I have, it's not because of them or because of me, it's because that's what God has handed me as I started my life. And the same with physical strength. The same thing. The same with athletic abilities. The th- same thing with anything that we develop. We develop what God gave us to begin with. And we should be grateful to that. And should, should if, if I'm going to keep from being arrogant about it and uh, despise others because they don't have the same ability that I have. Then I have to recognize initially that all good and precious gifts come from God. Everything I have came from him and secondly everything that I achieve and everything that you achieve has has been based upon the efforts and the grace of others if you are standing tall in whatever profession you're in it's because you're standing on the shoulders of others that's exactly why you are where you are and they may be beneath you because they're holding you up but they're not beneath you morally. They're not beneath you ethically. They're not beneath you in character. They're beneath you trying to prop you up and help you to do better. So all of our achievements are based upon what others have done and have gone before and have helped us in these areas. Now someone says, no, no, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Sure you did. Sure you did. That's uh, That's an axiomatic. You can't do that. Somebody's helping you pull you up. Somebody's helping get you up and get you to stand. Our good circumstances that we have are present here, and the good fortune that we enjoy right now is because we have the good opportunity to improve ourselves because others have a concern for us. Somebody else has reached out and uh, lended us a helping hand and has helped us stand before God and before our fellow man in the position we're in. So our gratefulness should come, first of all, I am what I am because God made me this way. He gave me all of this that I'm using. Secondly, I am what I am because you help me. You helped me along. I am what I am because I have a good opportunity and I have good fortune because of good circumstances. But none of this comes about because I am independent and I've done it all myself. That's what the Pharisee was saying. That was his attitude, and that's what Jesus is condemning, that arrogant, egotistical attitude that says, I am better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. Therefore, I'm better than you. Or I came from a better family. Therefore, I'm better than you. That has no place in the life of an individual who cares about anybody else, and certainly anybody who cares about God. That was the problem. God help you understand that everything you are, all the treasures you have are because of what God gave you and what others have helped you to achieve.